Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Loops episode 115. Thank y'all so much for listening. Muchísimas gracias. <laughs> Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cis, white dudes. What? No, that's right. That's a big fat N.O. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294, and we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Eamon Lovell Presley, an aspiring actor in Atlanta, Georgia, who began killing random people as his acting career floundered. Also, I wanted to mention that we are going to be taking a short break, uh, just a couple of weeks. So uh, we'll be back, but uh, just wanted to let you guys know. That's right. But in the meantime, Beth, before we get into all the things, how you doing? 
I'm doing good. I got vaccinated last mm-hmm. Friday. Okay. So I feel better about uh, how the pandemic is going. Good. Two doses yeah. or just the first one? Just the first one. Okay. So no symptoms? Um, I was just real tired. Okay. And okay. that's it. Yeah. Okay. Cool. And I also finished a scarf. <gasps> Hallelujah. <laughs> Yeah, my Except first it was scarf. 85 degrees in I know. Phoenix today. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but you'll you'll have a head start on, on next Christmas. Year. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna be everybody's getting scarfs this year for Christmas. <laughs> and you get a scarf. And you get a scarf. And you get a scarf. Everybody, everybody gets a scarf. Gets a scarf. <laughs> <laughs> oh wee. Well, nice. Good for you. Yeah. Cross that off the list. Good. Yeah. It's good to be How ahead of things. I'm doing all right. Um, we are, uh, the, I think there's an end in sight for the pendejo. And yeah. we are headed back to in-person school, which is right. exciting and terrifying at the same yeah. time. Um, also, uh, my son is learning about slavery in school. And he came out and I, I've been I've been telling him, like a, a, a while back, they were learning about how we're on Hohokam and O'odham land. Mm-hmm. And they, talked to, they taught him about the conquista but they totally left out the part about how the conquistadors killed lots of people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so now they're talking about slavery. And my son's conclusion in his preliminary lesson about, you know, enslavement was, well, why didn't black people just go to the north? And I was like, well, son. It's not that simple <laughs> because it would have been very difficult for them there, too. And I was tr- try I was trying to in a really like not um, horrific way, but describe the punishment that could happen to people if they escaped. Right. Um, you could be ripped away from your family. Your family members could be sold. They could castrate you or cut off a body part or brand you in a hor- or maim you in a horrific way. Um, you know, it just it just wasn't that easy, son. <laughs> but I said, I can, appre- I hope you can appreciate that in your little, in your third grade land, that you're getting a little taste of this part of American history. And as you get older, we're just gonna, you know, we're, I'm not gonna put the fire hose in your face, but there's a lot more to learn. <laughs> so, uh, am I right? Fruit loops. Yeah. Uh, so now we are going to get into some listener. Ale- Well, hello, angels. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, angels. Now beat it. Just kidding. (laughs) Uh, So what's in that bag, Beth? I'm going to hell. (laughs) We got a Patreon message from Taylor who said, Hi, Wendy and Beth. I just wanted to drop a note thanking you both for your bomb-ass content. I became a patron after binge listening to y'all while I work. I'm a gardener in San Francisco, so your Zebra Murders episodes basically had me looking over my shoulder all day long, alternating (laughs) between, oh my God, I totally know where that is, and oh shit, I am high-key standing near where someone was murdered (laughs) (laughs) oh man anyway i love your culture corners intro music and basically everything (laughs) a million hip-hop air horns for you and i have to say a million hip-hop air horns to you taylor am i right yeah yeah oh we love y'all so much thank you taylor thank you what else is in that bag well we got a voicemail from marlene marlene yeah. Up, oh 
Oh my God. I just love seeing Marlene all over the timeline. Oh my gosh. She's one of our day ones. And I really feel like Marlene is my friend. I don't know about you, Beth. Yeah. But like, yeah. like she's part of the glue that sort of keeps Fruit keeps Loops it together. together. Yeah. yeah. And I agree. We, just uh, mil gracias. We just have so many thank yous to give to Marlene because uh, I, I don't know if you all have seen in like our show notes and stuff. She makes dope ass beats like Marlene is the shit. So it was really exciting to see a voicemail. Yeah, we use her music for uh, some of the um, our transition music and for some of the yeah music. for some of yeah. our episodes. And her beats are fucking fire. Yeah, so she's in some of our show notes. So you guys will have to check that mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. So anyway, here's her voicemail. Yo yo yo, fruities, Wendy and Beth, everyone else. It's me, Marlene. I guess you see me as Marlene La Petite Mort, but it's really Marlene Miller. Anyways. I noticed we haven't had any uh, voicemail calls. What's up with that? But hey, I really love this community. I love how we all know each other. I love our Facebook group. Like every time someone or every time Wendy and Beth like message or mentions someone in the group, I automatically know who they are. Like we're old friends. I don't. We should just all just add each other or something. But yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out on voicemail and um let everyone know that this is the coolest podcast group ever so and well that's a given because it's the coolest podcast (laughs) so yeah anyway i'm glad we're all enjoying it i can't wait for more Wendy and beth you know you have all my love and support keep doing you all right mean green marlene thank you so much boo thank you so much you know we got nothing but love for you thank you thank you thank you what else is there we got one more message an instagram message from cherry jello three hello or zero three okay (laughs) (laughs) who said i know this is late in the game but i just wanted to let you know that i started listening to your podcast and i was going through old episodes episode 53 talked about sex workers back page and craigslist i'd love you to shout out sold in america podcast it's by a poc and very well done sex work has been around since the beginning of time and making it a crime for the women only is pretty despicable thanks for covering the lesser known serial killers your commentary and camaraderie is great i'm so glad i stumbled upon your podcast keep up the good work so thank you so much cherry jello 03 thank you so so much (laughs) And I was looking back at our episodes and I know that I binged the shit out of that podcast, Sold in America. And I sold in America. I yeah. couldn't find if we shouted it out. So, so if we did not, it is an excellent podcast about sex work and sex trafficking in the West, in America. And it is so good. Um, there's a lot, you know, there's it's one. It's, I don't know if it's Wondery or NPR or. One of those. One of those. those, um, But it's really well done. It's a very fancy (laughs) podcast. They have like they had offices and stuff, (laughs) name tags, badges, you know, like the whole the real deal, Holyfield. But it's really good. And um, I think it's also really educational. Right. We all know sex work has been around for a long ass time, but um, to really get a a really good in-depth look at the matter is exciting. So 
Yeah. Uh, if we haven't shouted it out before, we are now. So thank you, Cherry yeah, Jello. Thank you. We also got some new patrons and Patreons and Kofi donors. Boy, y'all are keeping me busy with these tunes, and I love it. Because, <laughs> uh, uh, side note, I would do this whether it was on the podcast or not. <laughs> so I just want to say thank you to, we. well, we want to say thank you to, oh, wait, did we do Hip Hop Air Horns for Cherry Jello? No. no. Oh, Cherry Jello, Hip Hop Air Horns. So sorry. <laughs> Okay, so now we uh we got some new patrons, 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 uh Kofi donors. Just y'all are really, really um coming through with the support for the show. We really appreciate it. And yeah. I've got some tunes for you. Um, quick intro, Cassie B, Phoenix Fox, and Victoria N. So here you go. Don't you forget Cassie B. <laughs> don't, 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 don't you ba-dum, 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 forget Cassie B. Yeah. And you walk on by and you call my name. Ba-na-na-na-na-na. I'll stop. But thank you, Cassie B. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, okay, Phoenix Fox. I'd rather be drunk, but at least I'm alive. Phoenix Fox, 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 Phoenix Fox, Fox, Fox. I'd rather be drunk, but at least I'm alive. Phoenix Fox, 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 Phoenix Fox, Fox, Fox. <laughs> All right. And this last one, Victoria. Make me Victoria. Oh, make me Victoria. Make me Victoria. Oh, and I can't remember the rest of the words, but thank you so much for supporting our show. Yeah, thank you. Well, uh, I hope you guys didn't hate those because I like making them and I love you. Uh, So now we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get into the story when we come back. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mihaljevic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. True crime is one of the biggest genres in podcasting right now. And if you're a fan, chances are that you think you've heard of every single case that's out there. Well, if you're looking for a new podcast to binge, try Suspiria, a true crime podcast. Every week we cover interesting, outrageous, and unbelievable crimes that happen all over Latin America or involving Latin people. All through the voices of me, Carol. 
and me, Stephanie. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, CastBox, Overcast, and many other streaming services. So check us out. Ciao. Ciao. And we're back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Today we're talking about Eamon Lovell Presley, an American serial killer who killed four people over four months in 2014 in Georgia's DeKalb and Fulton counties. All right. Well, uh, let's get into some stats. Eamon Lavelle Presley was born in 1980 in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, there are four murder victims in this case, so rest in power to the one queen and the uh, three kings. Calvin Golston was 53. He was an unhoused black man with a history of schizophrenia. His nickname was Butterball. Uh, and <laughs> total tangent. I don't know if anybody remembers the Steve Harvey show. And he was like, do you all remember that song? Butterball, uh, I love you. Uh-huh. <laughs> But a ball, a something, 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 but a ball. What I think of every time I see that name. His brother, Mr. Butterball Golston, his brother said when he would go off of his medication, he would wander and would be unable to maintain stable housing. Um, he had a brother and a sister that uh, I was I was able to find. I don't know if he had any other siblings. Dorian Jenkins was a 42-year-old unhoused Black man who, at the time, was sleeping on the streets. His nickname was Sidewinder. Uh, And then there was Tommy Jerome Mims, who was a 68-year-old unhoused Black man, and he was known as the Can Man. Karen Pierce was a 44-year-old white woman who was a popular hairdresser in the area, and she uh, was said to be a very generous and kind woman. Uh, The murders took place from September 2014 to December 2014, so very short window of time, in Georgia's DeKalb and Fulton counties, uh, as Beth said. And um, I thought this was interesting that when you combine the amount of Black people in both of those counties, it's like one million people. Um, uh, One million Black people. Uh, And uh, another interesting thing I noticed from looking at the percentages um, not the sheer numbers, but the percentages of the black population in Atlanta since basically enslavement started, it's always been about 50 percent. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So back then and even now. So now we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, the setting is Atlanta and Stone Mountain, Georgia. We talked about Stone Mountain in the Atlanta child murders episodes, mm. but here's a refresher. The Atlanta region, of which Stone Mountain is part of, was originally Creek and Cherokee Native American territory. Then the British came in, and uh, surprise, surprise, Georgia became the 13th British colony. After the revolution in 1788, Georgia became the fourth state to join the United States of America. The city of Atlanta, Georgia, became a busy center for cotton distribution on the backs of enslaved people, and the Georgia Railroad helped the economy thrive. After the Civil War, when freed people came to Atlanta in search of opportunity, Atlanta's Black population began to grow. The original Ku Klux Klan was formed in 1865 by six former officers of the Confederate Army as a response to Reconstruction after the Civil War. The Klan started in Tennessee, but then spread throughout the South. They claimed to seek, quote-unquote, justice for crimes against white people and protect white supremacy. Historically, the Klan has been responsible for horrific and terrifying acts from cross burnings, lynchings, castrations, rapes, arson, torture, and, uh, you know, just general terrorism. Yeah, but they were the ones seeking justice. (laughs) 
Right. Um, you guys, it doesn't work that way. Um, so the original clan was mostly stamped out by the 1870s, but in 1915, the clan was reborn and Atlanta and Stone Mountain were at the heart of it. William J. Simmons, a former Methodist preacher, was inspired by the film Birth of a Nation uh, to organize a new clan in Stone Mountain, Georgia, as a, quote, patriotic Protestant fraternal society, end quote. The relaunch of the KKK occurred atop the rock, which the city of Stone Mountain is named after. Stone Mountain is an enormous rock, 800 feet tall and a mile and a half wide. The relaunch of the KKK began with the burning of a gigantic wooden cross, which was visible from downtown Atlanta. Yeah, we all know what that was intended to do, right? Terrorize yeah. Uh, yeah. the the black people in the area. Yep. Uh, the original Klan had not worn white costumes and had not burned crosses. These aspects were introduced in the book on which the film was based. When the film was shown in Atlanta, Simmons and his new Klansmen paraded to the theater in robes and pointed hoods, many on robed horses as well, just like in the movie. Uh, it's like cosplay, but more yeah. terrifying. <laughs> Terroristic yes, cosplay. Yeah. Oh, boy. God. These mass parades would become uh, another hallmark of the new Klan that had not existed in the original Reconstruction Era organization. In 1924, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, whose primary activity was to support the construction of Confederate memorials, started a project to create a bas-relief sculpture on the northern face of Stone Mountain. The United Daughters of the Confederacy is considered a neo-Confederate group. Neo-Confederates are groups or individuals who portray the Confederate States of America and its actions during the American Civil War in a positive light. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's but it's wildly inaccurate. Uh, yeah. I did also want to point out we, we didn't we talk about Reconstruction, but Reconstruction was the period of time after enslavement when black people had full rights. Like I'm talking, man, 2020 can can take a back seat. Like this was f- so futuristic that uh, black people had all the rights, all the political power, and it made white people crazy. That's why the Klan came about. Yeah, they lost their goddamn they lost minds. their minds, and in 19 19- 24 that's what right after world war one right and black men and um bipoc indigenous men and um immigrant men who fought for the united states are coming back from war and like expecting to be treated like i don't know human beings and white supremacists are like oh fuck no get the fuck out of here uh so they're like i know let's just make up a bunch of um put up a bunch of monuments and we'll scare the shit out of them. And maybe, you know, our white supremacy will, you know, prevail. Um, So the view is also called, now we're talking about uh, neo-Confederates, sorry. Uh, The the view is also called the lost cause of the Confederacy or simply lost cause. It romanticizes the, quote, old South, end quote, and the Confederate war effort, distorting history in the process. Should have put distorting and bold, underlined, maybe made the font... (laughs) 100. Uh, Slavery is sentimentalized with white Southerners telling stories about happy slaves and the, quote, Mammy, quote, or Uncle Tom, quote, unquote, who was part of the family. See, they're happy. They're singing. 
and dancing. Yeah. See? They love, they love slavery. slavery. Yeah. They love the shit the, out of oh slavery. Oh, my gosh. Look at how look at that. They're, they're singing and they're making things and they're, you know, they, they're so nice to they us. They were just part of the family, yeah. except we own the shit out yeah. of them. Um, not to mention they're terrified of what you will do to them if they decide to show some agency or in- independence. Uh Boy, oh boy. They're part of the family that uh, they could whip. <laughs> whip, cut their balls off. Hey, you know what? I didn't like the way you looked at me, so I'm going to sell your grandmother and your firstborn. Uh, there... But you're just part of the family. <laughs> there was a really sick law um, that was enacted. There was a million of them, but enacted during enslavement that um, made it illegal for people to kill their slaves. <laughs> and it was because masters' wives, the women slave owners, were beating children to death oh with my impunity. God. And uh, uh, the, you know, the government was like, this doesn't seem great. So maybe we'll make a lot of like, you know, make it illegal or whatever. Or, oh my uh, God. But anyway, it, just the horrors of enslavement. Uh, and it's so cute yeah. that the lost cause is like, wasn't that bad. Right? <laughs> sorry to sorry oh, that was a tangent. Boy. So anyway, where were we? The oh, the carving on the face of the mountain. So oh, okay. the project started by the uh, United Daughters of the Confederacy resulted in a huge carving on the northern face of Stone Mountain that depicts three leaders of the Confederacy, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Jefferson Davis, mm. all riding horses, each holding a hat over his heart. Oh, and uh, that image is still there today. Boy, oh boy. In late 1945, after World War II ended and black soldiers came back to Atlanta after serving their country, the Ku Klux Klan held a rally at the top of Stone Mountain, featuring a 300-foot-wide cross lit by fuel oil, visible from 60 miles away. Holy shit. To let the N-words know that war is over and the Klan is back, one attendee said. And among the attendees were dozens of Atlanta policemen. Sick. Mm. In 1958, under Georgia's segregationist governor Marvin Griffin, the state created the Stone Mountain Memorial Association and purchased the rock and surrounding land to create a memorial park. So it's now a state park and the carving is protected by state law. No! The parks, yeah, the park's official grand opening was held on April 14th, 1965, 100 years to the day that President Abraham Lincoln was shot. Oh, shit. And that's after the Voting Rights Act uh, was passed. That was after um, some progress that had been made by the civil yeah. rights movement. And that's kind of what we find um, if you look at all the monuments, Confederate monuments throughout the United States. They all seem to have been erected and celebrated immediately after Black progress. Um right. So, right, they're trying to assert their power. Uh-huh. Yeah, or just remind yeah. you, like, don't play yourselves. This is yeah. America. Uh, and yeah. white supremacy reigns supreme, uh, and we're not going to let anything else fly. So today, millions of people visit Stone Mountain every year, and it is Georgia's most visited attraction. The park offers hiking, fishing, golf, playgrounds, a sky ride cable car, a 4D movie theater, gift shops, there's even a laser light show. Pew, pew, pew. It also <laughs> offers visitors the lost cause view of the past. 
eulogizing the leaders of the Confederacy and celebrating their cause as valiant and noble. Gross. Yeah. I was going to say <laughs> bullshit, but I, I I haven't done that in so long. I couldn't cough and say bullshit at the same time. Couldn't cough it out. Yeah, plus it's a pandemic. So, you know, you know I'm just trying to be careful out here. Sorry. <laughs> So prior to white flight, Atlanta was pretty evenly split between black and white. But white flight left the city's remaining populace as majority black. That contributed to a mostly black police force and black leadership, including a black city council. Maynard H. Jackson Jr. was elected in 1973 and was the first black person to run a major southern city. By the way, now there are a bunch of mostly black cities in the south and most of them have black mayors to this right now. Oh, wow. So during his first uh, eight-year stint in City Hall, he launched programs intended to empower neighborhoods, raise the profile of Black Pride, and included minorities in the city's economic boom. The entire city leadership was Black. Woohoo! <laughs> Atlanta became an industrial and commercial center of the South and a center for Black education. Some of our greatest HBCUs like Atlanta University, Morehouse, Clark, Spellman, and Morris Brown were established in Atlanta. There were Black-owned businesses, a Black middle class, Black activism, and probably more opportunities for Black people than in most other cities. Atlanta's slogan is that it's the city too busy to hate. Mm. Catchy, isn't it? Yes. In 1973, Jimmy Cotta, the future president and then governor of Georgia, founded the Georgia Film Commission to market Georgia as a shooting location for future projects. The movie Deliverance, never seen it, was shot in the Georgia mountains in 1972 for a relatively small budget. But Carter saw how much money could be made. Other movies began to be produced in Georgia, such as Smokey and the Bandit, never seen it, in 1977, <laughs> and Driving Miss Daisy in 1989. Heard of that one, but never seen it. <laughs> in 2008, then-Governor Sonny Perdue signed a generous tax incentive for film productions. In the subsequent decade, Georgia has seen a rapid increase in film and TV production within the state. In 2017, it was announced that Georgia had overtaken Hollywood and had become the biggest location for film production in the world. I just think that is so exciting. <laughs> it is. Georgia can be every town USA, except for the fact that there's so many Black people there. Uh, <laughs> the varied aesthetics of the towns, cities, and mountains in the state, and the climate, which allows for year-round shooting, have been cited as the main reasons producers are choosing to film in Georgia over anywhere else. The Walking Dead is filmed in Georgia, as is Stranger Things. Various Marvel movies have been shot there, including Black Panther. Wakanda forever. <laughs> Some of the Hunger Games franchise were shot there, as well as some of the Fast and Furious movies. Tyler Perry has made the state his base, with Tyler Perry Studios located in Atlanta. His studios are located on a former Confederate uh, base, I believe he's said in at an award show. And Tyler Perry Studios is the largest film production studio in the United States and established Perry as the first Black person to outright own a major film production studio. That's pretty cool. Ooh, it is so yeah. exciting. Uh, it makes up for how terrible the movie Acrimony was. <laughs> Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. 
Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Now we're going to get into the killer's early life. What do you got, Beth? An only child, Eamon Lovell Presley, was born in Chicago, Illinois in 1980. I was unable to find his exact date of birth. Yeah. But 1980. If Beth couldn't find it, it doesn't exist. (laughs) He was born the whole year. The whole year. The whole year for him to be born. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. Where's the lie? Soon after his birth, his father abandoned the family, leaving his mother, Ursina Bernie Presley, to raise Eamon by herself. They lived in the Morgan Park community on Chicago's South Side. A childhood friend of Eamon's described Bernie as a strict disciplinarian, quote, very stern but loving, end quote. Eamon was in the fifth grade when he joined the Folk Nation, an alliance of Chicago gangs founded in the late 1970s by prison inmates. Quote, I wouldn't go out on the street feeling sorry for myself because I didn't have a father, unquote, Eamon later said. Worried that she was losing her son to the streets, Bernie was anxious to get him out of Chicago. So she accepted a job in Georgia and they moved to Stone Mountain. In 1995, Eamon was featured in an article about gangs in Atlanta. In it, Presley stated that he joined a gang when he lived in Chicago and that he was drawn to the gang because of protection and friendship. He goes on to say that he was trying to leave behind gang life. Quote, I knew it was something I wasn't supposed to be doing, end quote. Eamon graduated from Stone Mountain High School and then joined the Georgia National Guard. According to one source, he was fired in the early 2000s. And I don't think you get fired from the National Guard. I think maybe you get dishonorably discharged, Mm -hmm. but they said fired. So in any case, uh, he apparently left the National Guard and returned to his mother's home in Stone Mountain, where he worked low-skilled, labor-intensive jobs. I was going to say, if if it had ended there, he joined the National Guard. That's it. That's it, folks. That's, this is a weekly podcast. <laughs> and new episodes drop every, but no. His life turned out yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're going to get into the timeline. So in December 2002, Presley was working at the Conyers Crossing 
Carmike Cinema. Say that five times fast. (laughs) Uh, When he was fired, the manager had asked for a deputy to be close by when she fired him because he was, quote, prone to violence, end quote. Presley threatened the manager and another employee when he was fired. A judge at that point ordered him to take anger management classes. But that did not seem to help because four months later, on April 19th, 2003, deputies responded to a domestic violence call to the Presley home in Conyers. His mother, who was nearly crippled with arthritis, said the fight started when she encouraged him to be more thrifty. Bernie called deputies around 4 a.m. from a neighbor's house after Presley, then 22, hit pushed, kicked, and choked her. No, not to the mama. Then he threatened to, to your kill moms. her. Oh, my God. Then she ran to the neighbor's house to call the police. To your mama? Come on. That's, yeah. Ooh, can he be in jail now? Like, like <laughs> right now? <laughs> Forever? Forever, ever? <laughs> Presley's mother told deputies that they were having a discussion about how difficult it had been for Presley to save money to take a trip to Los Angeles. Quote, I said something wrong and he just went off on me, unquote, his mother said. Presley was allegedly intoxicated during the encounter. That doesn't help. When Rockdale deputies arrived, Presley blamed his behavior on his parents. He went on a tirade against his parents, telling police his life, quote, was messed up for the rest of his life, end quote. He stated that he could couldn't be responsible for his actions because he was just being what his parents made him out to be. Now, he's 22, right? Right. So, yeah. You know. Quote, Mr. Presley continued to talk about how his life was messed up by the things his mother said to him, calling him the devil and that he was the son of Satan, the deputy wrote in his report. When asked by one of the deputies why he was living with his mother if she was so bad to him, Presley said, quote, I'm just staying here long enough to make enough money to go to Los Angeles and nobody's going to keep me from my dreams, unquote. Okay, if you say so, (laughs) but tonight you will be going to jail. (laughs) So uh, good luck. Um, Let's see. Retired FBI criminal profiler Greg McCrary said that this exchange with police indicates Presley viewed himself as a perpetual victim, a common trait among serial killers. We call them, quote, injustice collectors. It kind of reminds me of, you know, when you, well, maybe you don't get into this, but I sometimes get into discussions with people and it becomes like the struggle Olympics. Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> you're trying to one up each trying, other. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> anyway, so injustice collectors uh, said McCrary, and they have the sense that everyone is against them. Their rage builds until it reaches critical mass, end quote. After talking calmly with deputies about how he was learning more and getting closer to God and how he wanted to go to Los Angeles, he followed deputies to the neighbor's home where his mother had fled. Presley then confronted his mother in a loud tirade using vulgar language. Oh, I wish I could have seen and heard what he was saying. And he made threats to her life. It was at that time Mr. Presley told all who were listening that he was going to, quote, get a gun and kill all y'all. According to the incident report, quote, I'm going to shoot holes in everybody, end quote. The deputy wrote in his report that Mr. Presley was behaving in a highly tumultuous manner, his arms waving all about, walking in short, quick steps, and shouting obscenities as if trying to wake up the neighborhood. In short, Mr. Presley was acting like he was on drugs, being so violently animated with his gestures. I know that he could have been on drugs. I also know that there's dudes in my life, in my family, who just get like this. Yeah. (laughs) When they're angry, drugs. 
drugs or substances or not. They just Yeah, it's not necessarily <laughs> drug related. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I just had that thought. Uh, his mother told deputies that he had used cocaine in years past, but she hadn't seen him using anything recently. Presley was charged with simple assault, obstruction of a law enforcement officer and making terroristic threats and acts for the incident. As the officers tried to restrain him, Presley adopted a boxer stance, taking a swing at one of them before fleeing on foot. He was detained on a nearby street, but didn't go easy. Deputies had to place him in leg irons after he tried to kick through the window of their patrol vehicle. Ooh. Jiminy um, Crickets. Yeah, holy moly, <laughs> sir. Relax. Um, remember we said at the top of the show that many members of the KKK infiltrated the police force. Um, yeah. That is not untrue for today's police force across the country. Many white supremacists um, were recruited. Many southern towns also experienced migrations um, of, of white people. There was, you know, there was the Great Migration where black people moved to the north, but a lot of white people followed and were recruited into law enforcement and also to help white people deal with their black people problem. But what I'm getting at is the uh, most of the officers, I, I at this point, I don't know if they're mostly black. And so for them to um, use such force to restrain him, um, I'm just trying to picture what that's like. If is it is it a George Floyd situation where they're trying to kill him or is it are they really just trying to right. detain him? I don't know. Um, but it was just a thought. Sounds I had. like he was a little out of control. It did. But have you ever heard an officer say that when they're speaking of black suspects, they talk about them like they're animals with some sort of human strength when really they're just they're just they're, just, they're the same. They're, yeah. Yes. But it's something about their skin color that makes the way officers describe them and perceive them as just being these animalistic, super, um, you know, don't feel any pain, um, super violent, aggressive, strong um, beings. Uh, so, right. Anyway. So so they tend to overreact. Yes. Thank yeah, you, Beth. Gotcha. Yes. Um, that's <laughs> what I was getting at. Sorry to make this episode so long. So his mother <laughs> told deputies that she feared for her life. She said, quote, I've made excuses for him before, but not anymore. Not now. After all of this, you do what you can for your child. And I've prayed and prayed for him to straighten up his act. But my prayers aren't being answered. <laughs> Oh, man. But yeah. I had a praying grandmother <laughs> and I had to call on the name of Jesus. That's what my grandmother would say. And I'm still going to hell. So sorry, Grandma. <laughs> Ersina Bernie Presley died in 2006. Eamon remained in the metro Atlanta area, picking up work as a movie extra. Presley was charged again in April of 2006 with simple battery for an incident that occurred on March 29, 2006, and was reportedly sentenced to a time in jail. At some point, he fathered three children, a daughter and two sons, but uh, couldn't find any further information about them. Presley appeared in two local shot, low budget urban action movies. Uh, one was called Exit and Rules is the other one. The director of both films, Tavares Wilson, told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution in an email that Presley was just a background performer, uh, an extra at best, adding, quote, I did not know him personally, nor can I recall very much of him from those movies, end quote. 
Presley saved up enough money to move to Hollywood in 2010. Through frequent Facebook posts, Presley gave friends the impression that he was doing well, that he was modeling and enjoying life in L.A. But in actuality, he was having trouble finding work. Presley was 31 at the time, too old to begin a modeling career. Speak for yourself. And competition for acting jobs in L.A. is fierce. He spent a lot of time at home smoking cannabis. Uh, It did not appear that he had much of a social life. He signed up for acting classes at Margie Haber Studio in Beverly Hills. According to a receptionist at the studio, Presley attended an orientation but never returned. Messages on Facebook suggested he may have been disappointed that he was grouped with beginning actors. Quote, so many bad actresses in my acting class, he wrote on Facebook. Hope to meet my future wifey, LOL, which uh, to that I say gross. (laughs) (laughs) I just think it's so funny how he he was in he was an extra in two productions and thought he was going to be taking lessons with Robert De Niro. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Relax. Again, this guy needs to do a lot of relaxing, have several seats. Uh, Here we go. At the beginning of 2014, L.A. police issued a warrant for his arrest for illegal drug possession. Around this time, he posted... Quote, we are all gods capable of good and evil and can do whatever we we want on earth, whatever it be good or evil, because that's the divine right we were given, end quote. The FBI's Greg McCrary commented that this was an example of, quote, textbook narcissism, end quote, that uh, they can do whatever they want. And that's how psychopaths think. Presley took a Greyhound bus from Los Angeles to Atlanta in May of 2014, hoping to rejuvenate his acting career. But he had no place to live, so he ended up living in a transitional home at the Gateway Center in Atlanta. People there described him as introverted and quiet. Presley took odd jobs at a restaurant and catering company to make money. A co-worker of Presley's recalled that at work where Presley was a dishwasher, uh, Presley was not performing the way he was supposed to, and someone called him out on it. Uh, and that led to yelling between the two co-workers, which turned into punches and then a threat. Presley was unhappy with the amount of money he was making, so he decided he would start robbing people, as as you do. <laughs> This one does. It is a crime yeah. indicating a struggle, um, but uh, not cool. Not <laughs> cool. Yeah. And in August of 2014, he bought a Taurus Judge 45 revolver from someone on the street. Have you seen a picture of this thing? No. The Wh- Taurus Judge. It's gigantic. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay, here I go. Give it to me, Googleisha. Taurus Judge revolver. Oh, wow. Look at that. Okay. Yeah, for a revolver, it's it's big. It's not very <laughs> cute. I mean, no, I would. It's it's play. kind of uh, scary looking. Holy moly! Wow. I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I mean, all guns kind of look the same, but uh, this doesn't look like one of those little handguns they send me in the lady catalogs. No, no, yeah. not at all. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Beth. So his Facebook posts ended on August 27th with an update of his profile picture in which he's wearing a black shirt and hoodie. On September 27th, Presley took a bus from downtown Atlanta to Stone Mountain looking for a victim. His stated intention was to find someone to rob. Calvin Golston, 53, who suffered from schizophrenia, was living in an alleyway near Spring Mill Village shopping center on Memorial Drive in Stone Mountain. 
Calvin came from a family who loved him. Officially, he lived with his brother Cedric, but he had a long history of mental illness and would often leave home to live on the streets at different times. His nickname in the family was Butterball. Presley saw the man sleeping in a breezeway near the shopping center, but instead of trying to rob him, Presley just shot him three times, killing him. Immediately afterwards, Presley experienced what he later described as an adrenaline high. The killings resumed Thanksgiving week. On November 23, 2014, 42-year-old Dorian Jenkins, whose nickname was Sidewinder because he dragged a foot when he walked, was shot to death. Presley approached the man as he slept wrapped in blankets on a sidewalk in Atlanta and shot him three times in the chest. As he slept? Like, that is just yeah. so cold. Sick. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, On on November 26, 2014, the day before Thanksgiving, Tommy Mims was 68 years old, known on the street as Can Man, was also shot while he lay sleeping on the sidewalk under a bridge, wrapped in blankets. He was shot seven times. Now, the Taurus Judge Revolver, as Beth just told us about, is a five-shot revolver. So Presley had to reload before shooting him the sixth and seventh time. Which yeah, is nuts. wild. Yeah. Bruh. Yeah. <laughs> Investigators who responded to the scene noted that the unusual bullets, which were elongated forty-five caliber bullets, often called cowboy bullets, they're very big too. <laughs> oh, oh me, yeah. oh my. Okay. Yeah. They were last manufactured in 2010. Uh, I, I don't know if that's all of these kinds of bullets or just the, the particular brand. But in any case, because of the similarities between the murders of Dorian Jenkins and Tommy Mims and the unusual bullets, investigators were able to connect the crimes and ballistics proved that both men were shot from the same gun. Okay. All right. Now we're now we're getting somewhere. Uh, 44-year-old Karen Pierce, known to her friends as Kiki, was studying to become a nurse while also working full-time as a hairstylist. A friend described her as kind, benevolent, and always helping others, even strangers. On Saturday, December 6th, she left a restaurant where she had just had dinner with a friend. The restaurant was in Decatur, just outside downtown Atlanta. At about 10.55 p.m., witnesses reported hearing a gunshot before finding Karen lying on the ground as they left a parking area. Karen had been shot while she was walking to her car from the restaurant. The murders of Karen Price and Calvin Golston were not at first connected with those of Dorian Jenkins and Tommy Mims. So that's it for the murders. Now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. Hit it, Beth. Atlanta police asked the public and law enforcement agencies nationwide for help with the seemingly random shootings of Dorian Jenkins and Tommy Mims. The type of bullet used was emphasized. Because the gun was so unusual, investigators were able to trace it to a man who said it had been stolen from his car, but he wasn't sure when. And if memory serves, I think um, there were only two of these guns in Atlanta, and that's why they were able to trace it. Whoa! Yeah. Okay. Wow. Oh, man. (laughs) Just two in the whole city, huh? I I think so. If memory serves, I I could be wrong, but that's that's what I remember. Look, you said Taurus, and I was just like... Sure, a gun that looks like a car. <laughs> but 
<laughs> but apparently it's more rare than that. So yeah. a break in the case came on December 11th when a transit system police officer saw Presley pass through a transit station entry gate without paying the fare. According to Presley, he was on his way to see a photographer for headshots. Found on him was the Taurus judge, which was loaded and a box of ammunition. He was arrested and Atlanta police were contacted. Atlanta police detective David Quinn interviewed Presley for about six hours after his arrest. Presley eventually confessed to the four murders and told detectives about his life. I was wondering if they even asked about his life or if he was just like, now just you need started to talking. know. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> he's a narcissist, right? I mean, that's yeah, clear yeah. to everybody listening. Am I right? <laughs> uh, so Presley told Quinn that he didn't believe he was a, quote, uh, biological malevolent person, end quote. But he felt that some of his experiences gave him a, quote, murderous spirit, end quote. <laughs> I just have a murderous spirit. That needs to go on some merch. Merch alert. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because I'm going to get the first piece. Uh, Those experiences included his father's early death, his mother's illness when he was young and seeing others abuse her, his involvement in a street gang in Chicago, and the violent lyrics of rap music. Now, see, he's gone too far because <laughs> I just get so mad when people interrogate the lyrics of rap music when all you have to do is look at an American history book or the Bible and be like, wait a minute, oh, this violence is every, is there's violence everywhere. In here and too. people write it, write it down and talk about it on paper? <laughs> With words? Are any of them going to jail? You know, talking to Congress? I don't know. Anyway. He described how he shot Tommy Mims and how he wasn't sure he had actually killed Mims. So he went back and shot him two more times in the head. Then as he was walking back to a transit station after shooting Tommy, he saw two more unhoused men. And since he was, quote, getting off on killing people, he wanted to kill them too, unquote. But he decided not to because doing so would increase his chances of getting arrested. Um, All things considered, that to him is the worst thing that could happen at this point. Right, right. <laughs> okay. uh, Presley told Detective Quinn that on the night of December 6th, he went to downtown Decatur, right next to Atlanta, looking for someone to rob. He spotted Karen Pierce walking alone near a parking garage. He then pulled out his gun, ordered her to the ground, and asked her for her wallet. Even though she obeyed all of his orders, he went ahead and shot her once in the chest anyway. But he said that he didn't feel the same rush when he killed Pierce as when he killed the others. He told Detective Quinn that he never meant to kill a woman, so he felt remorse and decided to stop killing and pursue his acting career. He's reformed and singing the light. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, that that quote just uh, cracked me up. That like, really is something. Like you, I guess I'll, I'll, you know what? I'm going to stop drinking yeah. and start working on my acting career except many people died in the process of you finding that out and reaching that truth i was thinking of like when you get like a a a pastry uh at at one of those fancy french pastry stores and it looks Uh so good and you bite into it it, and it tastes like (laughs) doo-doo 
and maybe he was like, oh, killing. It looks like that pastry in the window. <laughs> you know, it was super bit... fun when I was killing those homeless yeah, guys. And but... then I tried this other flavor and it tasted like doo-doo. And now I'm going to do something else. I don't know. <laughs> I'm through with pastries. Exactly. No more pastries for me. I'm going to Hollywood. And that is a severe oversimplification and re- re- very reductive. And re- ridiculous. Yes. And ridiculous. ridiculous. Uh, but that's where my mind went. So now we're going to get into the trial. So in 2016, remember that year? Presley pleaded guilty to the murders of Karen Pierce and Calvin Golston after reaching a plea deal. He was given a sentence of life in prison plus 10 years. Presley attempted to explain his actions in court. Get ready for this. Quote, I am not a serial killer. I'm a brother that had some real serious issues and problems who did some things that I'm not proud of, quote, said Presley. He went on to say his actions were ungodly. He apologized to the families of the victims and closed by sending a message to his own three children. Quote, I want to show them what taking responsibility for your actions truly is and truly means. My apologies to you all, said Presley. But he also suggested that he thought he was helping Golston. Addressing the court, he said, quote, I thought that maybe he would be in a better place than to be homeless or on drugs, unquote. Uh, come again? <laughs> What was that you say? Um, he should have stopped talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He should have just zipped it up right there. Zip it. <laughs> uh, so this infuriated Golston's family, of course. Gee, I wonder yeah. why. Uh, and they said, uh, he's a punk coward, Patricia Green, Golston's sister, said after the court proceeding. Quote, I hope and pray to God that when he gets in jail, somebody will find him and kill him, too. End quote. And boy, I really appreciate the the honesty. Yeah, I understand that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Golston's brother Cedric said that the sentence will bring his family closure, but Presley's comments did nothing but infuriate him. Mm-hmm. It took everything in my bones not to get out of my seat and go and attack that man, he said. That was just horrible. That was just something that he'd made up. In January 2017, Presley stood trial in Fulton County for the murders of Jenkins and Mims, the other two individuals. He pleaded guilty to both murders, claiming that after he had killed the first victim, he got addicted to murder, but also declared that he shouldn't be subjected to criminal liability. Wait a minute. Due to his insanity, Presley's plea deal gave him another life sentence, but ensured that he did not get the death penalty. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Boy, is this short. Yeah, this is a short one. (laughs) Eamon Lovell Presley is currently incarcerated at Telfair State Prison in Georgia. Oh, boy. Uh, Well, now we're going to get into our takeaways and what we think made him snap. What do you got, Beth? Well, obviously, this guy was really, really angry. Mm Mm-hmm. He needed help probably at a young age. My impression was that the only help he got was prayer and one court-mandated anger management class. Okay. He also seemed really lonely. He just didn't seem to have a lot of friends, just coworkers and acquaintances, which also probably fueled his anger Mm -hmm. that he could not make connections with people. Mm. His dream was to be an actor, but he just didn't have the skills or the patience to learn those skills Mm -hmm. or any kind of work ethic. He just didn't want to work for it. Yeah. He wanted it handed to him. Mm -hmm. And as a narcissist, he was pissed when that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. I also think as a single child, uh, sometimes uh, they get a little spoiled. Yeah. Yeah. And they expect things to be given to them. 
But as he got older and moved back to Atlanta, he must have realized that his dream wasn't going to be realized. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we all have that reckoning about something in our lives, a point where you realize that dreams don't come true. Yeah. (laughs) Something that you want just isn't in the cards for you. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of us come to terms with it and find something else to focus on. But this guy just got really angry and blamed everybody but himself and then uh, discovered that killing people got him off. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And it's interesting that he chose to kill really vulnerable people, Mm -hmm. easy targets, if you will. Yeah. Unhoused men who were sleeping Mm -hmm. when he killed them. Like there's there's no threat there. Yeah. (laughs) No. What a coward. Yeah. The only person he actually confronted and robbed, uh, which was his stated intention, was a woman mm-hmm. uh, who was also an easy target, uh, you know, alone being smaller at night. than yeah. him. And yeah, she was alone walking by herself to her car. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was not a brave man, mm-hmm. but killing people probably made him feel brave, strong and powerful. And maybe it gave him a sense of control when he felt powerless over the rest of his life. So, well, Beth, un aplauso. Yeah. Uh, Agree with all of those things. Uh, You hit all the nails on the head. Uh, I don't have anything else to say other than when I was looking into this case, it kind of reminded me of, you know, the famous actor Danny Trejo. Yes. Yes. It's kind of the same kind of life in that he was a man of color involved in gangs, poverty, father not around. Uh, He had been incarcerated and then he just sort of found himself on the set of a movie where they were looking for like, I think looking for people who, uh, looked like they had been involved in gang life right. um, to be extras. And then he just sort of got more opportunities from there. He got really, really lucky. Um, but he also didn't seem like he ever gave up. Right. Right. Uh, and now he's motherfucking machete. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they this probably worked really hard for that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think he worked hard for a lot of the things in his life. He's also, you know, right. like he's really um, vocal about being um, in recovery, how he's sober and he's he's you know like just trying to give back go back you know to his communities where he can help um people who are caught up in gang life or people who are incarcerated and people who've been incarcerated just trying to help because he he is so lucky um to have gotten the opportunities that he has coming from where he came from and i i just was thinking why couldn't Mr. Presley have been like a Danny Trejo? Um, yeah, yeah. And I agree. Uh, he was so angry, but without any cause or mission. Right. And uh, everything was a slight to him. And like yeah. I was mentioning earlier, I uh, growing up black in America is a tr- is traumatic in its in itself. We all know that this guy is garbage. We all know that. But he, we all know somebody like this, right? Who gets right. this angry at the drop of a hat. You know, just say something to him and he's going off and he's looking for an excuse to put hands on people or to get in a get in a fight. Oh, why do you he's always like somebody put some hands on me like I want to fight. And that's that's what this guy reminds me of. Um, Also, yeah, I was I, I. 
just I agree with you there. Preying on vulnerable people is cowardly. It's disgusting. It's um, shameful. Uh, and I am no true crime or psychology expert, but Beth, he's a narcissist, right? Yes. And I narciss- think so. yeah. narcissism sounds like a really benign ailment. Like ugh, you're so narcissistic, <laughs> um, right? right? Like, <laughs> like it's not just you like to look in the mirror a lot. It's, no, it's actually no. got some serious ramifications. Look it up because the yeah. effects are tremendous on people around them. And I've talked about how I'm in I'm in recovery, and a lot of the people in recovery have narcissistic parents. <laughs> oh yeah, um, yeah, that is a rough one. Yeah, growing up with narcissistic parents. Yeah, and it's a disorder in which a person ha- has. For those of y'all that don't know, according to Google, look Beth, look at me doing work, <laughs> researching <laughs> and stuff. According to Google, it's a disorder in which a person has an inflated sense of importance, um, found more commonly in men, but um, they have a disregard for other people's feelings and an inability to handle any criticism uh, and a sense of entitlement, which are all things that we saw in this story, right? So I just would like uh, a few points, maybe a pat on the back and a cookie for naming this man a narcissist. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Good job, Uh, Wendy. Thank you so much, Beth. (laughs) Now I feel great. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. So now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So... If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. Well, where should we begin? We just got some uh, oldies but goodies. Okay. Oldies but goodies. Do you want to trade off? Sure. So I'll start. Okay. 
So look like a tough target mm. before an attacker even thinks about striking. Your best self-defense is to look as strong and confident as possible. A would-be attacker seeks victims that are easy targets. Even if you're nervous, try not to let it show. Make yourself hard to hold. If an attacker comes from behind you and traps you in a bear hug with arms wrapped around your body, make yourself difficult to deal with so the person can't carry you away. Move like a toddler having a temper tantrum in the middle of Safeway. <laughs> yes, works every time. Uh, whose kid is that? Uh, make sure, make sure your body, uh, make your body harder to grip, and try to hit your attacker in the groin. One of the few places you'll probably be able to reach if your arms are pinned down. Good idea. Mm, thank you. Target a choker's thumbs. When you're being choked, aim for the thumbs, not the fingers, because the thumbs are what give an attacker grip. Kicking the person as you rip their hands off your neck will help you break free. That's, I think, one of the most memorable tips for choking is thumbs, right. thumbs, 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 thumbs. Remember the thumbs. Yep. Uh, hit the most vulnerable areas. Aim for, if it's made for breathing or breeding, go for it. The groin, the <laughs> nose, the eyes. Uh, hit soft places, including ears and the temples. Yeah, that hurts when somebody hits your ear, man. Oh, hit, I hit don't those think ears. I've been... I've ever been hit in the ears. Hit in the ear? No, but it sounds horrific. Yeah, it hurts. Hold your body ready to punch. Be sure to protect your face if you're forced into a fight and keep your chin down. Punches can come from two ways, straight at you down the center or hooked from the outside. Use your hand to redirect a punch or your arm to block it and your elbow works good too. Don't try to be a hero. If someone wants your purse or wallet, especially if the person has a weapon, you can replace your stuff, not your life. Take a self-defense class or look some videos up on YouTube. Then practice, practice, practice. Roundhouse! <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Sometimes I just walk through my house and do that. <laughs> do, do a roundhouse kick? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, broken a lot of bookshelves. Anyway... <laughs> Uh, those were fun tips, Beth. Thanks for uh, taking care of that part sure. of the show. Um, so now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show and I'll let you go first. Okay. So uh, my shout out is the Comey rule on Showtime. Ooh. It's based on the book, A Higher Loyalty, Truth, Lies and Leadership by former FBI director James Comey. Ah. <sighs> I heard about this. Yeah. So I got a, a free trial membership to Showtime. So. Okay. Okay. Nice. <laughs> so nice. I was like watching stuff on Showtime. Yeah. And uh, I came across this and I watched it and it didn't get great reviews, but I thought it was really good. And I especially enjoyed being able to see what happened. Yeah behind the scenes mm -hmm. um, when all this was going on and what, you know, Comey's experiences were, because this is from his perspective, right? So um, you get to see what happened with him, mm -hmm. what was going on in his mind. Uh -huh. And uh, like they recreated the scenes where he met with Trump uh -huh. and he, he immediately afterwards, he would write down notes because he knew that the meetings were weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it, I, I really enjoyed it. And I, um, I liked seeing like these things that, that happened not so long ago, but we've already forgotten about them because so many other things happened. Uh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> 
Yeah. Like, oh, I remember, remember that. Remember when? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I hear this is unprecedented again, <laughs> I'm going to yeah. lose it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, give that a watch. Oh, okay. Well, I'm excited. If you liked it, I think that I will like it. And isn't it with the guy who was in Dumb and Dumber? Yes. And he was in the newsroom. Jeff Daniels. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so he doesn't look really anything like uh, Comey. And the guy who plays Trump doesn't really look like Trump either. Mm-hmm. But um, he did a really good acting job, like all his mannerisms and stuff. Okay. So even though he didn't really look like Trump, he looked super ugly. <laughs> <laughs> he had his mannerisms down. <laughs> really? Yeah. Now, is it is it a, a series or a movie? It's a two-part miniseries. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, so I wanted to shout out the Suave podcast. So, you know, Maria Hinojosa, she hosts Latino USA, started her own um, media company, Futuro Media. And okay. she has a new podcast about um, a guy. His name is Suave. And he was in prison for life. He was sentenced as a, sentenced as a juvenile. And she met him one day while he was in prison, like shortly after he was sentenced, like 20, 30 years ago. And wow. he was like, I'm going to be in here for life anyway. So, you know, Maria, why don't you, can you give me an idea? Like, what do you think I should do in here with my time? And she was like, hey, you need to be a voice for the voiceless. And that's what he started to do and like improve his life. And so she, she's checking in with him over the decades um, and finding out about life in prison. Like she has a source on the inside. Um, right. The podcast is about his story of his incarceration, his crime redemption. Uh, Cause eventually he gets out and they're, you know, unconventional relationship journalist and prisoner and right. journalist and source but then journalist and source become friends so it's oh. really 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 good suave podcast anywhere you get podcasts oh, i'm gonna have to subscribe it's cool girl it's good stuff right well boo that's it for now um so where can the people find us our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in the footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's all correct. Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, 
and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com.